Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. <laughs> Welcome to Breakfast on the Class. Breakfast on the Class today is sponsored and dedicated for the speaking of Washilema of Rachamim Chai Clemon Ben Polet, sponsored by Gabby and Jimmy Kesri. Also dedicated for the Rafuashlema of their daughter Georgie Emunaba Tadasa, sponsored by Amy and Isaac Sagman. And dedicated for the Rafuashlema of Yaakov Ben Pauline Shoshana, uh, and as well in loving memory of Mariel's grandmother, Bolisa Bat Victoria, sponsored by Mariel Dweck. And finally, sponsored by Yaron Dahan, dedicated in honor of his wife, Deborah Miriam, and in celebration of the birth of their son, Besimantov, Mazatov, Mabruk, and Mazatov. Closing credits, yeah, exactly. The Pasuk says, Vayifen paro, Vayavo el beto, Veloshat libo gam lazot. Paro turned, and he came to his house, and he did not place on his heart. You know, he didn't allow, he didn't let his heart be placed, gam lazot, even to this. The Pasuk is, is talking in reference <clears throat> to the aftermath of the story of the blood. We have Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron, they go to the river, he hits the water. The result of the hitting of the water, what happens? The water in the river turns to blood, but not just the water in the river. <clears throat> all of the water, in all of Egypt, the water in the bottles, the water in, uh, what's it called? All of a sudden, all the flavors of Gatorade with the red flavor. Yani, okay? Not only did all the water in Egypt turn, <clears throat> turn to blood, but all moisture. So if, as an example, the, the house, if there was moisture coming out of the bricks on the, on the wall, that moisture also turned to blood. You can imagine a person is jogging and he's sweating, He's sweating blood. Unbelievable. All the moisture, all the, everything, everything, everything turned into blood. The Pasuk tells us, Vaifen paro and paro turns, and he comes to his house, his heart was not bothered by any of this at all. It almost seems like the Pasuk is telling you that paro's ability to ignore the blood, to ignore the plague, was dependent on so again, let's look at the Pasuk one more time. And Paro turned, it doesn't say he didn't care. It doesn't say, and he didn't care. And Paro turned and went home. It says Paro turned, he came to his house, and suddenly from within the confines of his house, <clears throat> he did not care about the plague. So the commentators ask, what was it about Paro's house that allowed him to not care about the plague? It sounds like there was something about his home that let him be indifferent to the plague of blood. And what was that? And there's different interpretations and different answers to this question. I want to focus on the answer that's given by the Meshech Chochmah. The Meshech Chochmah writes a tremendous chidush. He says, you know why Paro didn't care about blood in his house? Because the blood was not present in his house. Now, what do you mean? We just said that all the water in Egypt turned to blood. They dug new wells. The new wells also were blood, full of blood. They were blessed, uh, Mr. Aini. They were blessed with oil. What came up? Blood. Yeah? Sell it. Mehila, <laughs> the price of that blood is zero. Yeah, supply and demand. Everybody's got it. <laughs> Put it in a jar. <laughs> now, 
So what does it mean? What does the Mishnah Chochmah mean? That in the house of Paro, he was unaffected. It says everywhere. The blood was everywhere. <clears throat> Listen carefully. I'm going to read you the words of the Mishnah Chochmah. He says, why? Why was there no blood in the house of Paro? So he didn't care. Why? The point of this Makkah, it was only present the Jewish people, we know, <clears throat> their water did not turn to blood. So what did the Egyptians do if they wanted to drink water? What did they have to do? They had to go buy it from a Jew. If a Jewish person had a cup of water, right? Something, I, I smelled this, the smoke. I thought it was another, uh, another part two of the toaster debacle. What would happen if a Jewish person is drinking water, an Egyptian would run over, stick his straw in, he would suck out the water, but the water would turn to blood for him. The idea of the miracle was the way, the only way the Egyptians could get any water was through the process of paying a Jewish person for it. You'd have to pay for it. You have to pay for the water. Listen to this. Says the Meshech Ochmah, Uparo shegidelet Moshe, Paro that raised Moshe in his house. He already paid enough. He already paid enough. So therefore, the blood in Paro's house was already water. It was already paid for. Fantastic chidush. Now, if you think for one second about Paro, I mean, it's an unbelievable uh, about face in the leadership of Egypt. You know, let's go back to the beginning of the story where the Jewish people meet, so to speak, Egyptian royalty uh, in, in this uh, galut. Yosef turns up after being drawn out of the pit. And Paro says, I don't know what the interpretation of my dream is. And Yosef tells him, let me tell you what it means. Seven cows, you know what that means? That's seven years. The seven fat cows refers to seven years of plenty. The seven skinny cows, seven years of famine. The seven years of famine are going to come swallow up the seven years of plenty. All the food that you had, all the beracha that you had, all the GDP that you had, rahit, gone. So you need to start preparing by putting that on the side. That's what Yosef says to Paro. Paro says, wow, what a genius. Now, our rabbis tell us that when the Pasuk says that all the other wise men, all the interpreters, they all gave Paro their interpretations of the, of the dream. What does Paro say? En poter oto de Paro. No one gave an interpretation to Paro. Paro says, no, wrong. You're going to have seven daughters? No. You're going to find seven treasures? No. You're going to have a seven flavors of ice cream? No. Every interpretation they gave him, Paro says, no, it can't be, can't be, can't be, can't be. All of a sudden, Yosef comes along. Yosef gives him an interpretation. Paro's like, yes. How did he know? Maybe he's also wrong. What's the answer? Excellent. It feels good. Paro felt that Yosef was right. But what contributed to that? Listen to this, words of the Pasuk. What was Paro's name? No. No. His name was Ramses. His name was Imanhotep. His name was Mabimbarif. Uh, I don't know. Those are the only two names that I could think of on the spot. Okay? These names were their personal names. Paro is a, is a title, like president. Paro is a title like Caesar, like king. Now once you become the king, they call you Caesar. They call you emperor. They call you whatever they call you. 
But Paro's personal name was some other name, Ramses, was whatever. Says the Pasuk, En poter oto le paro. All the other interpreters, they interpreted it as a personal interpretation. Ramses is going to have seven daughters. That's about me. Iman Hotep is going to have seven milkshakes. That's about me. Yosef was the first person whose interpretation of the dream was a national interpretation. Paro said, if I'm dreaming, I'm not an individual anymore. I'm now the person who represents the head of the whole state. My dreams are the dreams of an entire country. That is a leader thinking like a leader. But there was a new, a new king in town, we read last week, who doesn't remember Yosef, who doesn't think in terms of the country. How does he think? In terms of himself. So if there's no blood in my palace, Moshe, I'm not letting the slaves go. I don't care that everybody else is suffering. It's not my house. So we're witnessing an incredibly selfish man. Incredibly selfish. Because if it's good in my house, I don't care what's going out, going on anywhere else. We have a pasuk that speaks specifically to this attitude. Mordechai says to Esther, you're the queen. Nobody knows you're Jewish. Achashverosh has no idea. Do not let your soul be silent. To escape to the house of the king. To think you will be safe over there. Don't think about yourself and your safety in the palace. This is your chance to stand for a nation. Paro is a person who could witness all of Egypt burn to the ground that he could not give to Hutz. My friends, are we people who in our ivory towers and in our beautiful apartments and in our lovely homes could ignore the status of the community around us? Could ignore the poverty of people around us? Could ignore the ignorance of people around us? You're a Jewish person. What's your greatest treasure? Your Judaism. If someone said to you, they put a gun to your head and they said, we want you to convert to another religion, bow to an idol. Jews throughout all of history have given everything. This room is predominantly Sephardim. Do you know what that means, that we are Sephardim? We are Spanish? I don't speak Spanish. These guys speak Spanish, they just came from Panama, right? I don't speak Spanish. My Spanish is a farce. I just take the sound O and add it to random words. El Chero. I have no idea what I'm saying. Okay? The weird thing is, half the time it's right. I'm like, Aeroporto. That's like, yeah, good. That's, the, that's how you say it. <laughs> okay? My friends, listen to this. What does it mean with Sefaradim? If you're Spanish, it means that when you were given a chance, a choice, to convert to Christianity and keep your wealth, and keep your house and not have to go into Galut. You know what your grandparents said if you're Sephardic? They said, Sayonara. They said, Goodbye. <laughs> and they went to Portugal. And from Portugal to Amsterdam, and from Amsterdam to another place. And we were kicked from place to place. Each time 
We had a choice. We could have converted and stayed. But we threw everything away. Our greatest treasure as Jews is our identity, is our, is our religion, is our faith. And if that's the case, if we relate to our faith as our riches, then we, if we are in this room, if you are listening to this class, you're a person who's very wealthy. You're connected to Torah, you're connected to growth, you're connected to a Beta Knesset, you have a Jewish education, you have a Jewish home. Could you sit in your Jewish home and say, I don't care that all of Egypt has blood, I've got water. I'm good. Me, I'm good. My family, we're good. I don't care that 95% of the Jewish people is on fire. They're burning down to the ground. They don't know anything. Not their fault. But 90% of the Jewish people are walking off a Jewish cliff. They are marrying Goyim. The numbers of intermarriage are 70% in America. That means that 7 out of 10 Jews will marry non-Jews. It's wild. And again, the fact, intermarriage is the end of the line. But there's a bunch of stops on the way. There's many different elements to this, where people are walking away from their religion. We know that this is the case. So what are you doing about it? Are you inviting someone that you meet who's not so connected to your house for Shabbat? Are you offering to learn with them? Are you inviting them to the Beit HaKneset? Come see the community, meet my rabbi, hear the people, let me buy you some tzitzit, here's some tefillin. I have upstairs in my office two pairs of tefillin donated by very kind people from the community. I'm saying this out there to anyone that hears. If you are willing to put on tefillin every day and would like a pair of tefillin that you can't afford, I have two pairs with your name on it. Someone donated a talit to anyone that would wear a talit every day and make a beracha on it. I had one talit, I put it up on social media. It was six people asked me. I mentioned to someone, six people asked me. He said, Rabbi, here you go. You have 10 no more talits. I have 10 talits with your name on it. This is what it means to not be in the palace and say, I've got water. I don't care that everyone else is bleeding out. But my friends, it's deeper than that. Because in essence, we have to parse this idea of the Meshech Chochmah itself. We have to think about the question of the Meshech Chochmah itself. What does that mean? That Paro, this guy, he doesn't have blood in his house. You know why? Because he paid. Of all the people in the, in the all of Egypt, if you had to choose one guy who should be the one that's getting punished, who is it? Paro. Paro's off and everyone else gets the punishment? What's going on? Let me take it further. Let me take it further. <laughs> Paro paid? Really? Paro paid? He paid the price? What does the Pasuk say? When Batya saved him. Batya said, This child is from the Jewish children. That's what Batya says, the daughter of Paro. Do you think Paro, she brought him back to the house and said, Hey dad, found one of them Jewish kids. And Paro's like, Fadal, set up the extra bedroom for him. Paro's killing all the Jewish children. Why is he killing the Jewish children? Because there's a prophecy, the oracle told him 
that the savior of the Jewish people is going to be born, right? And, and Paro's trying to get rid of him. And Paro knows through the oracle that this one, his death is going to come about through water. What is, what is that referring to? Moshe Rabbeinu hitting the rock to the story of getting the Jews water. So his death comes about through the water. Paro thinks, oh, that means I'm going to throw him in the water, he's going to drown. But Paro, if he could do anything, what's he going to do with this child? Kill him. He welcomes him into the house because he thinks he's not Jewish. How did Paro pay the price that therefore he should be saved? And the answer is, my friends, HaKadosh Baruch Hu God is not stingy. I want to tell you about my brother. When we went to camp, my brother and I, we went very young, sleepaway camp for a month and then two months. I went when I was seven for a month away from home. Amazing. I was born for camp. <laughs> no, lighting things on fire, swimming in the lake, fishing. You know, I was born for that, you know, just for that salt of the earth, enjoying going out to the woods, clearing the place, sleeping out in a sleeping bag. Like, I came alive in the summer. It was catching frogs, salamanders. Me and Charlie Harari would catch frogs and salamanders in shift day behind the gym. You know, we played ball every day, every night. I, I loved camp. I lived for camp. My parents knew that we were going away for two months. And they knew we were going to have a good time. And they wanted me to call. They wanted me to be in touch. So they made a deal. They didn't put all the money in my canteen. This, you know, for sweets and for all the special things like how the spoiled parents, uh, the spoiled kids got. They said every postcard or letter you send home will respond with a letter and in the letter is going to be $5. My mother gave me a stack of, of postcards already with stamps on them. <laughs> she knew if I had to do, like, I think the only more thing more my mother could have done is write the letters to herself, you know. <laughs> I thought to myself, I looked at the stack, I counted the stack, I was like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a millionaire. <laughs> I'm gonna mail a postcard every day. I didn't mail one every day, but I mailed one, two, one a week maybe, okay? I got my five dollars. My brother Yosef, on the other hand, was so enjoying camp, so much in his own world, that he just didn't find any time. And he managed to the five dollars. And he bummed sweets off other people at the canteen, okay? Anyway, one day, we get to the, to, the, um, to the lunch hall in Camp Shiftei Israel, and who's standing in front of the door? Some of the, any of the guys who went to Shiftei will, are going to message me when they hear this. Rabbi Wallerstein, if you don't write a letter home today, you don't get into dinner. So you had to write a letter to get, you get your food. So that was their way at least once a summer <laughs> that the parents should have one postcard from their child. So my brother was very young. Maybe he was seven or eight years old at the time. And he writes a postcard to my parents. My parents received the postcard. And the postcard says, from my brother, who's such a moral, spiritual guide, very special young man, he lives in Israel. And the postcard says, Dear Mommy and Abba, please do not send $5. <laughs> As I only wrote this postcard to get into dinner. <laughs> There's a man who's too honest for his own good. <laughs> you know, 
just say, hey, Ma, what's going on? No one has to get hurt. <laughs> My parents sent the $5 anyway. You know why? Because their parents, they want to send the $5. You sent the letter, I don't care if you wrote it together, then I don't care what the reason is. You did something good, I'm happy to give you. Borei Olam, God is the father, is the parent, not just of the Jewish people, of all humankind. To the point that when the Jewish people, when we want to sing Shirah, when the Egyptians are drowning, God allows us to because we've been saved, but God says to the angels, you want to sing Shirah, but my creations are drowning. Who was drowning in the, in the, in the waters? Murderers were drowning. Murderers. You're going to sing? It's not a time for singing now. Breaks my heart that they're suffering, even if they're wicked. I wish they could have come back. I wish they could have done repentance. A parent who has a child who's a murderer, and then the child gets stuck in, a, in the electric chair. You think the parent's not going to feel bad? He's a murderer. What are you feeling bad for? I'm feeling bad because I wish he wasn't a murderer. Because he could have turned the leaf. Because he could have done something. Breaks my heart that this is what happened with him. What a shame. What a waste. Still love him. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like the Gemara says in numerous places, God doesn't play games. He doesn't play tricks. He's not trying to hold back. So if you did something good, even if your intentions were not there, you still get rewarded. Paro took care of a Jewish child. So later on, when in order to get water, you had to pay a Jew, Hashem says, it's here. He wrote, he wrote it. He wrote it down. It was there. How many mitzvot, my friends? How many mitzvot do we have? Which are not done the right way. Which are not done with the right intention. Which are not done in the most perfect of ways. And still Borei Olam says, I'm going to hold on to it. And I'm going to remember it to pay you back. Borei Olam is looking not to punish. He's looking to reward. So many of us grow up with this understanding in Judaism that God is sitting there with thunderbolts waiting to catch you making a mistake. And one of the greatest things I learned, greatest lines I ever heard about parenting is that when you see a child struggling, don't catch them making mistakes. Catch them doing good things. Be on the lookout to find something. I remember once I was talking to a parent and I said this to him, and he said, my parent, my child is struggling in school. And I said, okay. I said, he says, well, what can I do? I said, catch him doing good things. He goes, but what if he doesn't do good things? I said, trust me, he does good things. But if I could be honest with you, maybe now I know why your child is struggling. Maybe part of the problem is that he has a parent that doesn't feel or think He'll ever catch his son doing anything good. That becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I wonder, I wonder, if maybe the reason why the Meshachachmah explains that Moshe, that God rewarded Paro for the fact that he did this, 
all that time ago for Moshe, was God trying to send a Paro message. Dam was the first plague. God saying to Paro, it doesn't have to be this way. If this is your reward for the fact now Paro knows who this kid was, now he knows that he was Jewish. Now he knows that if he would have known who he was, he would have killed him. And he sees that for an action that was the opposite of what he was trying to do, for an act of kindness that he did not intend. And if he would have known, he would have killed the kid in cold blood with his own hands. <laughs> if this is the reward that he gets, imagine the reward that he would get, not for saving one Jew inadvertently with the worst of intentions, but for saving all of the Jews with the best of intentions. I was at a wedding. It was uh, the Uziel wedding. And there was a little girl. She was a flower girl. She starts walking down the aisle. And she's nervous. And the crowd wanted her to feel good. So she took one petal and she dropped it on the ground. So what did everyone do? Like she just discovered nuclear fission. Okay, it was amazing. Oh, amazing. Wow. This kid's sitting there looking around. I remember thinking, did I do that? Right, you know what I mean? <laughs> she takes two pet petals and she throws it on the ground. Again, the crowd. <sighs> Three petals. Everyone goes nuts. The kid made the only obvious conclusion. She took the whole thing, <laughs> dumped it on the ground. <laughs> Amazing, right? Think, Paro. You're being saved. You're being rewarded miraculously for one act of kindness to one Jew that you didn't mean. That if you would have known you'd have killed him. And this is the reward. What would it look like if you took the millions of Jews under your power and did something nice for them on purpose? God was trying to communicate this to Paro. We don't have to go down the route. There doesn't need to be nine more plagues. May Hashem bless us to always experience greatness, to always experience berachot. May Hashem bless us uh, to allow us to look at the deeds of our children, the way that He looks at our deeds with uh, a magnifying glass, trying to catch us doing good things. Baruch Adonai Amen.